So, uh, just following up first um, with uh, a little bit of Trudy's uh, talk last night. With the there's the psychiatrist's uh, couch, and there's uh, you know the typical man sitting with you know his notepad, uh, writing it down. And the room's dark, and and so a um, little different version of this is so, Mister Smithers. When did you first discover that your sense of self was just an illusion? Of course, there's nobody there. So you can make whatever you want, meaning out of this, you know? Is this Mr. Smithers or is there, you know? How does this work? One more just to start, because, you know, it's just the way, good way to start, you know, it's all such seems so serious in some ways. So there's the classified ads and and in this section, you know, there's the personals. And so there's this, uh, um, I'm lying this uh, tar, tall, dark, and handsome Buddhist. You know, and then there's kind of the dots and then underneath it, it says, looking for self. <laughs> you know, so... So tonight I would like to, uh, I just want to kind of circle around uh, this uh, idea of self. And um, I sat and I, I kind of always kind of write a poem just to kind of collect myself and, and take a way to uh, look at what it is I'm going to uh, hopefully uh, kind of untangle in some way. I was thinking about the precepts, and um, I know this is a strange thing to say. I was thinking about the eighth precept about high beds and and high seats, and there's always a sense of us sitting up here in a high seat, and I'm not sure if I should be here or not. You know, uh, kind of like that uh, what that couch in some way. So, but. Um, Oh, I'll have to tell a story about Jack. Start here because it was, it was a, it was a big deal. This was twenty. This was at IMS about probably ninety one or something like that. And I, I went with Sylvia and uh, Rodney Smith, and and uh, he was teaching the New Year's retreat. And you know, I, uh, I really didn't expect to give a talk. I, you know, I came from Nevada City, and you know, I had like. 10 or 15 people in my sitting group, and that was about it. So, and Jack came in and said, well, you're going to give the talk tonight, you know? And I totally freaked, you know? <laughs> and fortunately, Sylvia was there, so I had kind of mother-father figures. And But Jack, I don't know if he even uh, knows he said, but as, and even if he did, it's what I heard, you know? And uh, I said, oh, I can't do this. This is too much, you know? I'm, I'm you know, kind of shy, and I don't... Uh, this is way outside my parameters of uh, doing something like this. And, 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 and this is what I heard. He said, oh, it's just selfing, you know? And I kind of went, just selfing. Oh, I get it, you know? That's what I've been working on, you know? And then I'm always walking around running into the same guy, you know? <laughs> So 
So this why it was a little, I realized when I wrote it was kind of a little bit on the heavy side. But, but you know, the self uh, is so tricky, you know. And so when I was thinking about it, I went, oh my goodness, you know, this is, it's sort of like a walking through a landmine of some kind that's already been kind of preordained on some level. So I call it the tattered self. Sometimes, walking along the path, the traveler encounters his own needy shadow. Perplexed by the question, that can't be me. The mirror must be confused. It's just a visitation from a ghost, some proximity of a real me. Deep down knowing that the confrontation was again pulling one towards one's own beckoning. Where the revelation of the path through the mountains could be a way to silence the one in the mirror. Oh my, how many me's have I created? Every fear and hope creating a new version. Finally, having stopped, not turning around or looking ahead, but standing, facing, face in hands, shedding tears for all those lost selves, meticulously crafted, so I wouldn't have to know it would end as a dead end, so I wouldn't have to know it would end as a dead end. Everything to be redistributed. Speaking in a low voice, hoping the other parts won't hear this hidden silence. Slowly deconstructed the tortured and unassuming of faces, or should I say mass. A moment again where the mountain path, so obscured by so many stories painted so colorfully, distorting both eyes and ears, coming back into focus, coming back into focus, winding its way towards the heavens, revealing snow and wind to a high and rocky loneliness, a place where we can take back the image and the break in the mirror of, quote, this and that. At last, letting the body carry this heart and mind, slow letting that self recede in the amazement, being blessed by this relative and absolute truth. So there's kind of two uh, aspects. One, um, I like this language of the two truths, you know, when you talk about the self. And that there is the, in a sense, the relative self, uh, which in kind of Western psychological terms is something that has to be uh, what I I know that, uh, you know, when I I first came to this practice in the 60s, there was this... um, I really wanted there to be a God and a soul and that somehow that uh, there'd be some way that I could uh, 
you know, encompass uh, some of, there was something bigger that I could, um, in a sense, be held by, you know. And I remember at the time, you know, I, I did go to uh, Zen Center on Page Street and Suzuki Roshi and kind of the instructions, and, and it was so dry, you know. I, I wanted some meat and juice, you know. So then it went over to Hare Krishna's, and, and uh, you know, that was pretty juicy, you know, in some ways, you know. Good lunch, you know, and <laughs> and um, and then I went, to, you know, I went down to the Santa Cruz Mountains, and I I kind of went to Christian uh, kind of communities, and and um, uh, really started exploring all these types of meditation, but they all had underneath it that somehow I would um, there would be a, a part that I could leave the past behind. And I could transcend everything that uh, I had experienced on some level, and there was some place that was higher and better and beyond all this, you know. And it was a great longing, and I thought, oh well, this this will do it, you know. And I remember in in uh, Berkeley, um, there was this group. It's called the Tibetan Floating Lotus Magic Opera Company, and. Uh, <laughs> They were sort of some of the first people that went to Lama Foundation, and, and um, my yoga teacher uh, Surya was was there, and and um, you know he really convinced me that I didn't belong here, and that somehow I didn't fit in anymore, and it was true I didn't fit in anymore here, and so I had to go overland to India to see if I couldn't find that uh, that you know burn the bridges and transcend and somehow find that connection that would um, you know, dissolve the simplicity of um, the pain you know, that had just, uh, in a sense, had been buried. And you know, I had found all the kind of distracting and, and ways to kind of move around it or dissociate from it or uh, just not uh, really be straight with it on some level. It actually took me a, a couple of years in India. You know, I, I was a kind of a sadhu type that uh, still had this belief and somehow that uh, there was some mystical connection that uh, would uh, take me out of all of it, you know. But I also remember one of my first Tibetan teachers, Lama Thupten Yeshi and and, um, you know, uh, he was great help in the sense he was just, you know, he was one of these people that had such a kind heart. And you could tell that was, you know, that's who he was, uh, was a kind heart. And that was his primary piece. But one of the, th- he taught me a lot of things, but one of the things was, that was true for me was he said, you know, John, you always think about you have to go out. And somehow all of your, and also our cultural, uh, in a sense, religion taught us that somehow it was about transcending. And he did a very simple gesture that uh, somehow, you know, we have these insights sometimes. And uh, he pointed and he said, you have to go through this, you know. And uh, it really began uh, a journey of uh, first recognizing that, you know, uh, part of this whole practice is that uh, we have to own it all. 
You know, this is not about uh, changing who we are or uh, getting a better self. You know, uh, it's really this willingness to kind of turn uh, our attention towards uh, who is it that's sitting here. You know, and what is it in these uh, practices? Uh, that uh, begin to, in some ways, kind of shake up as we see how it works on some level. You know, we're such good storytellers. Have you noticed and that every time you kind of uh, make something up, you know, and you think you have some understanding of it, uh, what happens? You know, it changes, and something else happens. And so, whatever is constructed actually is caught in this maze of uh, constructions, you know. Oh, one of the, uh, kind of really the, what is it, the kind of heart pieces behind the, uh, this truth is the, the Buddha when he met up with his five aesthetic friends after uh, his awakening and he, he walked from Bodhgaya to Saranath, uh, just outside of uh, Banaras Varanasi, and uh, he taught the Four Noble Truths. And it was really the foundation of where this all goes on some level, that there had to be, in some way, uh, this deep understanding of the nature of how this is, you know? And not some fantasy or trying to uh, dissociate or get somehow past it in any way, but actually start to really own it. And uh, uh, owning it, uh, essentially, the Buddha just simply said, you know, hey, guess what? You know, uh, everybody here sitting down, if we really start investigating the story, uh, in essence, I can say, you know, it's one story. You know, uh, it is the truth of this first noble truth. You know. And that we have to begin to understand that uh, there are parameters around how we did that. You know, that there is actually a kind of manufacturing there. You know, and that uh, manufacturing uh, has both freedom available in it and also more suffering. And so we have this truth of uh, kind of connecting what, what's there. And this is all, all of this is based on that. In essence, I think this third noble truth of liberation, you know, and that there's a path that leads to that. And after he taught that, they were so moved uh, by this that five days later, uh, he taught what is known as the Anatta uh, Lakana Sutta, which is uh, about the self. But actually he's, finds it as no self. And again, you have to, uh, you know, from Western psychological point of view, there is the, in these two truths, the one is the relative uh, reality, and that the Buddha was more interested, not so much in the relative, which our Western psychology uh, is um, really steeped in, in ways of, of creating a, a, a strong kind of ego self that, um, 
has a really uh, balanced operating system. But his interest was actually in something deeper and different, you know. It didn't exclude that. I know that for myself, you know, one of the things is that when I went to Asia and I uh, went looking for kind of this, really a transcendent model of getting out of it, you know. Uh, you know, kind of that, was it Country Joe and the Fish I'd get so high that I'd never come down? You know, was really the kind of the mentality there. But then there was this investigation, this process of where we come to, where, you know, uh, Trudy was talking last night, you have to have this, this foundation. You know, it's like the foundation of a building has to have, you know, the concrete and has to have the rebar. And it's really where this, uh, the ethical um, kind of uh, connection with what's available to us. You know, and I remember my first Vipassana teacher, uh, Manindra, you know, I remember, well, you know, you have to understand I was about 21 years old and, and I really didn't like the precepts. You know, it was like, come on, give me a break. You know, I'm not in Sunday school, you know. And there was this sense of like, I didn't come all this way just to hear this stuff, you know. And, um, you know, and he turned and he, he it was a must you know, simple explanation. He said, oh, to follow these precepts is to stabilize the mind, you know, which allows it to concentrate. You know, very fundamental, very straightforward, you know. And I got, oh, that's what it's about. That to hold these uh, is actually uh, to hold the uh, it's just like this room uh, as we've all come together in some way that uh, we are supporting each other, you know, in the very delicate balance, you know. And I know for myself, you know, sometimes, uh, at least in these kind of retreats, you know, it, it's maybe the person next to me, you know, they're sitting so quietly, you know, and that, that I get fidgety, antsy, like it happens, you know. And I look over and I go, oh, they're just like a rock, you know. <laughs> you know? And uh, suddenly, then there is this, oh, uh, in a sense, a sense of ease. And, and that, that, that uh, just due to the conditions here, uh, there is a, a kind of dropping in, a stabilizing uh, of the steadying the, the kind of mind uh, that's needed to see to look into. Uh, in these uh, kind of two truths, of course, the relative in this sutta, it is really based on the fact that uh, he says, okay, you have a, a body or form, uh, you have uh, feelings, uh, there is perception, there's mental formations and consciousness. And he simply says, these are the components. The, you know, he used the word skandhas or it's translated heaps or streams or whatever, but they are the, in a simplistic way, it's the components, you know, of, uh, of our operating. And that uh, he, he, he says in this, and he goes through it kind of over and over, that each of these, there is not a self in any of them, you know. 
and that somehow uh, in the sutta itself, it is uh, the fact that uh, we are the manufacturers, you know, in that sense of the mental formation, that we are, in a sense, uh, on these simple truths, we're imposing our putting on uh, a, um, in essence, kind of a relative self. And what's interesting in the sutta is, is uh, to me, it was really the ending of it. The fact these five were sitting there and, you know, they uh, had been there five days with the Buddha. And uh, just through hearing this, uh, recognizing uh, the truth uh, of uh, self and not self, that they were liberated. And they were really the first... uh, not only disciples, but actually those that uh, experienced uh, complete liberation you know, and became kind of the foundation of his uh, later community. You know. So just to hold the truth of this, and there's, there's two pieces of this tonight that I, I'm going to play with because one is really from the Sanata Sutta, and the fact that the Buddha simply goes through the mechanics of, of the uh, operating system and that nowhere can you find a self in it, you know, that is something that's built uh, as a formation, you know. Uh, so that is really the relative side, and there's a lot you can say about that because it's simply that consciousness itself is as we sit here, there is, uh, the, is the consciousness uh, which is always in relationship uh, with a sense door and an object. So those are the kind of three things that are happening to us. You know, So there's the, what you see on the outside, what you hear uh, that it's going on, and um, and that consciousness, whether it's a thought or a view or opinion or a liking or a disliking, uh, it all is in uh, simply arises and pass away in that relationship. So there is nothing there that you can hold on to. And that's really what he was pointing at at this, you know. And from the relative side of this, it's the way it works, you know, is that somehow we have to really see in very, very, very minutely that uh, that manufacturing that goes on between the sense and the consciousness and the object, uh, that uh, it is simply all in flux. Uh, You know, whatever you think a moment ago, ciao. You know, uh, it has arisen and passed away. You know, if you're just sitting there and you know there's, you're kind of, you know, I was like kind of scratching your butt or, you know, and your attention goes there and the next, you, you know, you heard something I said, you know, I don't know how much you hear, but, you know, it comes and you may make up something about it and it goes through and, wow, it's just this constant going on, you know. And that somehow we begin to say, oh, wait a minute, you know. Um, 
uh, it is really is about this practice of seeing the kind of flux or the impermanent phenomena of the flux itself, you know. And that we teach ourselves the simplicity of, oh, constantly learning to let go. You know. So over and over again, we just simply know that uh, all of this, you know, uh, no matter what we, even uh, experience in itself, uh, rises and passes away. You know, and it's really so. That's the really relative side of it. And the Buddha immediately he was such a you know pragmatic guy. He said, "Okay, let's look at the components of this." You know. So I'd like to actually also add something because it's part of uh, a beautiful thing that comes uh, through um, uh, many of the traditions, and it's very easy to distort in some way know this. But it has to do with the fact that there is uh, more going on here, you know, than the sense of the senses and the uh, experience, and that we know that all of that is in flux, and if we try to grasp and hold on to it, you're going to suffer, you know. And so we have to learn this letting go. But at the same time, uh, particularly through the uh, you know, the Thai forest tradition and a lot of the, uh, some of the Mahayana schools and stuff. Uh, there's also the truth about, uh, they use this word, Tathagata Garbha, the, the actually the, this thing, Buddha nature, you know? And it's, it's very tricky because, again, uh, we want to, uh, you know, from my old um, kind of wanting, that I want to take that on some level and freeze it and uh, make it into a, soul or a god or something solid. You have to be so careful with this. It is such a fragile piece, you know. And, uh, and yet, uh, there is the, uh, in the absolute, there is the undestructible, you know, that the Buddha simply said, oh, it exists, you know. And it's not anything you could ever, you know, hang your hat on. Uh, not possible. You know, when I was in Thailand, this was a few weeks ago, anyway. Um, I, I got this. They make these uh, kind of, I guess it's a rubber mold. And uh, so I got this rubber mold of um, Ajahn Maha, uh, Mahabua, who was a disciple of Ajahn Moon, <laughs> and wrote his kind of biography. He's really cute. Um, but he's like old, and, you know, he has little stubby hair that they put in and stuff and, and uh, Thais love this stuff. It's really beautiful. And, um, but there's also in the Thai force tradition, uh, there's really uh, in, the, in the absolute universal, there, the truth is that there's also uh, something that's, uh, that uh, is indestructible in all this. Yeah. So I'll read it. This is from uh, Ajahn Mahabhuva. Whatever arises has to vanish. Whatever is true, whatever is a natural principle and of itself won't vanish. In other words, the pure mind won't vanish. Everything of every sort may vanish, but that which knows the vanishing doesn't vanish. This vanishing, that vanishing. But the one which knows their vanishing doesn't vanish. 
whether or not we try to leave it untouched, it keeps on knowing. You know? And so, again, it's a, it's a, uh, tr- it's to me tricky because in somehow we want to, you know, at least I do, in the sense I want to elevate it. You know, and I know that, you know, one of the things in the in the traditions in Tibet, uh, which always kind of fascinated me, and I've, you know, I've studied at different times, um, was the whole aspect that you had the the kind of uh, early sects of Tibetan Buddhism, and that uh, just like in the Protestant movement, there was uh, the uh, Reform movement uh, in the Tibetan. And what it was, was uh, that uh, uh, Tsongkhapa, who was kind of the, the um, founder of the Galupas, which uh, the Dalai Lama had part of that sect, which tried to go back to some of the uh, original, you know, uh, monastic rules and, and, and really look at some of the early material, you know. And what was somewhat behind that was that uh, they had, uh, again, and this is my own uh, kind of somewhat interpretation, so I, I uh, uh, see that this is such a tricky thing, you know, because we're talking about uh, something that, uh, you know, when we talk about freedom, uh, that is an ex- really is the force of freedom itself. And that, uh, what Tsongkhapa saw was that it was easy to distort it and deify it and make it bigger than it actually is. You know, that we're talking about something really simple. You know, and that simpleness, uh, the ordinariness uh, of it uh, is also that that uh, recognizes or reflects or mirrors a freedom uh, as it is. Uh, this is from Agnes de Milo. Living is a form of not being sure, of not knowing what's next or how. The moment you know how, you begin to die a little. We guess you may be wrong, but we take leap after leap in the dark. So there's this piece, this very kind of uh, narrow thing that allows us to uh, not know, not know in a sense and way, not to know nirvana, not to know samsara, not to take and classify, but simply kind of stay in the, uh, in a sense, kind of uh, uh, holding, uh, and really what this practice is, is holding this capacity not to imprint, not to put on, but simply to release and, and, and let things reappear. You know, I would say fortunately that, uh, you know, they keep doing it. You know, it keeps reappearing. You know. And so why not? You know, if it keeps reappearing and we know that, you know, on some level there has to be, um, you know, um, what some uh, really... Uh, let's see if I can find that. Uh, 
um, uh, discipline in the sense of uh, really uh, not getting caught in the senses. It's so easy, you know, and that we can, uh, in a sense, not do that. And that we can also, uh, you know, in essence, uh, kind of leave the the um, what the making up of things alone, you know, and that we begin to really cultivate uh, the kind of awakening factors, and that our ability to kind of sustain or hold them, you know. It's really what we're doing, you know. And a lot of this is built already in to just sitting here. I like this word ease, you know, because in essence, you know, as a, I remember when I felt first, the first years, gosh, 10 years of my practice, I had this idea that somehow that I can beat myself uh, into enlightenment, you know. <laughs> You know, it was like if I pushed hard enough and I, and I, you know, it was this thing about, oh, you had to be courageous to get instead of courageous to be, you know. And I think so much in the Western culture, you know, we're really good at, in a sense, kind of pushing to get. But the, um, you know, this is such a fine line we're talking about, you know. Uh, it is, you know, the Buddha simply called it the middle way, but in some ways it's very much like a tightrope. And it's so easy to fall this way or that way, you know. And that our ability to kind of stay um, on track with it uh, is an art form, you know. Last night, uh, one of the things that when I'm, uh, at least in Dharamsala and stuff, I go to see Tenzin Palmo, and um, I just, uh, I have so much respect uh, for the lineage and how she holds herself and how she has committed herself uh, to these young uh, Ladakis and Spiti and Lahul women, uh, very young, you know, and she has now, um, what are there six of them that have kind of finished their six year studies and now are actually doing their kind of two, three year retreats. Uh, and they are uh, in this lineage of what is known as the Tokdens, and they are these, uh, my heroes, and they're kind of these matted hair, you know, sometimes six feet. And I've seen them uh, years and years ago when uh, they were opening in this place, Tashi Jong, and and all the and I was fortunate to be alive during the time of some of really great lamas, and uh, uh, the Tokdens came and they were doing the life of Padmasambhava, and these Tokdens would came in. They came out of these caves and they would come in, and they would go out in the center, and they would uh, jump up in the air, put themselves in full lotus, and come down on their toxics, you know fine, you know, and you're just going to, you know, it's like it, it actually looking at it was like shocking, but you realize that somehow that for them there was this, this sense of the touch was ease, you know, 
and that their yoga was all based on uh, the warrior that found ease. No. And I think it's a great reflection for us because all of us, you know, we can, um, you know, um, so much in the relative teachings is, is that there's uh, somewhere to go or get, you know. And I like the truth of this very fine line that says, you know, uh, you are that, you know, uh, you uh, are the awakening, uh, is not something separate from you. But of course it's covered by the, the uh, impermanent phenomena of all these selves that uh, keep uh, believing that there's some uh, other means uh, to courageously, you know, kind of carry on the, this infinite battle with ourselves. The one who thinks himself equal or inferior or superior to others is, by that very reason, involved in argument. But such thoughts as equal, inferior, and superior are not there in one who is not moved by such measurements. Why should a wise person argue with another saying, this is truth and this is a lie? If such a one never entertains a thought about equal, inferior, or superior, with whom is he going to argue? (laughs) The sage who has freed himself from the dependence on others and from the dependence on words and is no longer attached to knowledge does not risk smothering of truth by engaging in disputes with people from the Sutta Nipata, which is a great uh, kind of poetic uh, piece in the kind of Theravada tradition. So I'm going to read this piece by uh, Ani Tenzin Palmo. Um, she's a very uh, kind of practical, pragmatic being, as we begin to develop awareness of the mind, the mind itself appears to divide into two. A new aspect of the mind arises. This is referred to variously as the witness, the seer, the knower, or the observer. It witnesses without judgment and without comment along with the arrival of the witness, a space appears within the mind. And this is kind of, I think, the crux of this. There, a space appears within the mind. It enables us to see thoughts and emotions as mere thoughts and emotions rather than as me and mine. 
When the thoughts and emotions are no longer seen as me or mine, we begin to have choices. Certain thoughts and emotions are helpful, so we encourage them. Others are not so helpful, so we just let them go. All the thoughts and emotions are recognized and accepted. Nothing is suppressed. But now we have choice about how to react. We can give energy to the ones which are useful and skillful and withdraw energy from those which are not. Pretty good, huh? So maybe just a little. This is a little Thomas Merton. The inner self is precisely that self which cannot be tricked or manipulated by anyone. It is like a very shy, wild animal that never appears at all whenever an alien presence is at hand and comes out only when all is perfectly peaceful, in silence, when it is untroubled and alone. It cannot be lured by anyone or anything, because it responds to no lure except that of the divine freedom. So, you get to know what you're doing here. You know, um, you're not going to get something. You know, we're so trained that somehow there's a getting. You know, that that somehow uh, that will do it. But really what is being said here is that when all the complexities, uh, behind all the complexities, uh, is uh, something that is sustained. Uh, It is something that um, you know, is a like saying an essence or um, you know, I think of it as a kind of a clear heart. You know, and so the mind uh, we we have to train the mind. You know, but the mind uh, for what purpose are we training mind? I hope it's really in some ways it's just to simply be, you know, in the gift of this body. And that the heart then uh, it really in some ways becomes, uh, so the mind becomes a servant of the heart. And then that chitta, that heart, mind, uh, in some ways I think sometimes uh, the heart is already pure. Uh, the mind itself is uh, a kind of a dualistic complexity that uh, uh, we keep getting fooled and uh, caught in. You know. I think that's pretty good.
end, I'll read my poem again. The Tattered Self. Sometimes walking along the path, the traveler encounters his own needy shadow. Perplexed by the question, that can't be me. The mirror must be confused. It's just a visitation from a ghost, some proximity of the real me. Deep down, knowing that the confrontation was again pulling one towards one's own beckoning, where the revelation of the path through the mountains could be a way to silence the one in the mirror. Oh my, how many me's have I created? Every fear and hope creating a new version. Finally, having to stop. Not turning around or looking ahead, but standing, face in hands, shedding tears for all the lost selves, meticulously crafted so I wouldn't have to know it would end as a dead end. So I wouldn't have to know it would end as a dead end. Everything to be redistributed. Speaking in a low voice, hoping the other parts won't hear. This hidden silence, slowly deconstructing the tortured and unassuming faces, or should I say the masks. A moment again where the mountain path, so obscured by the many stories painted so colorfully, distorting both eyes and ears, coming back into focus coming back into focus, winding its way towards the heavens, revealing snow and wind to high and rocky loneliness, a place where we can take back the image and break the mirror of, quote, this and that. At last, letting the body carry this heart-mind slowly letting the self recede in amazement, being blessed by this relative and absolute truth. Let's just sit for a moment.
thank you for your attention and please don't get lost uh, <laughs> thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate